Hello listeners and welcome to the Monto Weekly Podcast. Bring energy matters in an informal setting. This week, we discuss gas and Europe's energy crisis. Everywhere you look, energy is in the headlines as prices surge. Households and industry face soaring costs, perhaps for many years to come, if we are to believe some bosses of UK energy firms. And this is largely on the back of soaring gas markets. Now, what's the reason for the crisis? Is Putin to blame, as the IEA director Fatih Birol suggested this week, or are there other factors at play? As we record, prices have softened, but will they stay that way for the weeks and months to come? Joining me, Richard Sverson, to discuss these issues is our old friend Trevor Sikorsky of Energy Aspects. A warm welcome to you, Trevor. Thank you very much, Richard, and as always, a pleasure to join Montel. Let's go straight in and discuss current prices. They have softened. This is this is the wholesale gas prices, both in the continent and in the UK. What what's the reason for this? Well, I think the softening that you're seeing at the start of this year is is a couple of things, but. Uh, I'd say there's two two main drivers there. And the first one's, of course, is always kind of weather. And certainly it was a very mild, you know, a mild end to, to, to 2021. Uh, and whenever you have those, you know, that peak winter not being that, that cold, uh, it really kind of helps soften demand. And with softening of demand, you know, people's views of scarcity, how much scarcity, in, in you know, there is in the market starts to come off. And so we really saw that. And certainly even for the first half, of January, even if it's not been that mild, it hasn't been really, you know, it's been around normal or slightly better than normal in, in terms of temperatures. So again, you know, not the big draw on storage that demand could have brought had it been a lot colder. So I think you're seeing some of the winter risk ebb away as we go through the peak winter and, you know, and really cold weather hasn't really shown up. I think the second big one is, of course, as well, LNG and LNG send out's been really high. And we've had a lot of LNG. You could say this is also weather, but it's not European weather driving that. It is uh, of course, Northeast Asian weather largely driving that because, you know, the Northeast Asians went in to, I think, this winter really highly bought with a lot of gas in storage. And a, they've had a very mild winter, lots of concerns about uh, La Nina going into the winter. Uh, we did some analysis that was quite interesting, really said only with La Nina year, you only tend to get one month of, of, of very cold temperatures. And that tends to be January, maybe in the second half of January. We might, we might see a little bit of that, but December really, really mild, far milder than normal and, and milder than expected for a La Nina year. And that really just meant that, you know, the Asians weren't, weren't, weren't burning through their stocks. And a lot of that is terminal stocks. So, you know, if you've got a lot in your terminals, you just aren't, you know, if anything, you're going to be turning away a few cargoes because you just don't have room for it. And we saw a bit of that. And of course, that just weakened that, sent a lot more cargoes into the European space. Um, the other thing as well is we've seen a lot of overperformance probably from a lot of LNG supply. And of course, with LNG prices where they are, you know, you're looking at, you know, around, you know, they, they've been around $30, $30, maybe a little bit less with some of the recent changes in the TTF. But, uh, you know, very, very high gas prices, huge amount of incentive to get gas onto the water if you're a producer. And of course, we've seen, you know, a lot of production probably over, uh, you know, over what you'd say nameplate capacity is of facilities. We've seen that 
uh, from the US. We've seen that from Australia. All of the big producers really being strong in terms of their production. And that has pushed uh, probably more LNG uh, than expected as well into that European market. So those two drivers being really strong for LNG send out, that has you know, helped uh, limit the draw on stocks and has kind of eased those concerns about end of, you know, end of March storage, which were so important, you know, you know, even, you know, six weeks ago, or even probably four weeks ago, before these, you know, before the weather happened, and before LNG happened. We saw, you know, in December, prices peaked uh, all time highs of 188 Mm -hmm. uh, euros per megawatt hour, they've come down to around 70, 80, what what's your view going forward here in the weeks and months to come, Trevor? You know, and, and what, what is it all about the weather now? It's always about a couple of things. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. so I, I mean, the two drivers that have helped soften it are going to be really important, right? So if you see a flip in in either of those two drivers, either the weather or the LNG imports, uh, you know, then then you'd say, well, the, you know, there's a bit more upside probably into pricing to come. You would again start to see a, a bigger draw in storage, and, the, and that would worry, you know, the market a bit, and there would be a little bit more risk priced into that market. Probably not, possibly not as high as what we saw, you know, uh, in December because there's less of winter left. Uh, so probably the risk profile looks a little bit better than it did back then, but you could still see prices going reasonably high if either of those two switch. And then there's the Russian question, and that Russian question, of course, is, you know, is incredibly important and, uh, you know, has been something which means, yes, you know, we're talking about prices coming down, but historically, even, you know, uh, you know, even the 70 euro price is incredibly high for the European market, you know, historically at levels that, you know, we've never seen before. So, you know, very, very high very expensive gas expected for the rest of the winter uh, and for the summer because you know even with um, some softening uh, you know expected probably you know on that curve it's still not really going to be a place where we're going to be able to burn a lot of gas into power so those pricing dynamics are going to keep the curve reasonably high so you think around 70 euros a megawatt hour then that that's that's where we'll stay until the summer well, I mean, I, you know, like I, like I said, I think, you know, if any of those two, you know, if any, you know, if weather changes, LNG changes, then of course there's upside. Um, it, you know, it, has the market finished repricing? You know, we, it's kind of wait and see, you know, as we get further and further through the winter. If we continue to have an end of March, which looks satisfactory and, you know, comfortable for the market, maybe you see a little bit of easing. But for certainly for that strip from now to the end of summer, you know, prices are going to have to stay historically reasonably high, i.e. at the top of the fuel switch range, if not higher. And they've certainly been a lot higher than the fuel switch range over the last couple of months. So that kind of support is still going to hang out in the market. Mm. I mean, I, I want to return to the fuel switching um, levels and, and the dynamics there, Trevor. But let's return to the uh, the Russian question. So the pipeline gas and the scarcity, is it all about Putin, uh, as Fatih Birol was, was, was hinting this week or suggesting quite, not really suggesting, it was clearly stating and blaming uh, Gazprom for, for the crisis? Is that too simplistic? I mean, it's, you know, certainly if you looked earlier in the year, it was a combination of, you know, Asia bidding away a lot of the LNG from the market, you know, it being pretty supportive in terms of weather, you know, renewables was low, you had a whole bunch of things kind of adding into this, and it was very cold in in Russia. And I think last time we talked, we were, you know, kind of sympathetic, at least over the first half of the year in terms of, you know, the Russians 
you know, needed to fill supply and, you know, or needed to fill uh, domestic storages, which were, you know, incredibly low and, you know, had increased production a lot in order to do that. So we were reasonably sympathetic to the idea that the Russians didn't actually have very much incremental gas to supply into the market. Kind of six months on, that sympathy is, is, is eased, mm. I would say, or <laughs> has waned a bit. You know, a couple of things happened. First of all, you know, if you'd looked over the previous couple of years, you know, Gazprom was always refilling domestic storage to, you know, between 72 and 73 BCM. And when they hit that, you know, it would have maybe been uh, a signal that they could have sold some additional gas into the market. And of course, they didn't do that. And they seem to be relying very heavily just on nominations. They've effectively stopped selling on the ESP. So, you know, uh, and then they filled up their storage, you know, to 75 domestically. And that means that now they do have a lot of gas in storage. And certainly to the end of December, you would have said, you know, they have been preserving uh, domestic stocks at the expense of selling uh, any incremental gas into the European market, you know, and and given how high the European market is pricing, that does feel like there, you know, there is a degree of withholding supply from that market for whatever reason. And, you know, and, and we do Certainly, you know, internally, you know, we have lots of debates about, you know, what what are the Russians, you know, actually doing here? Is it just about getting Nord Stream 2 online? I mean, everyone's kind of, you know, agreed and, or you know, and at least publicly recognized that this is just a, you know, a regulatory set of hoops that the Russians have to jump through. It's, 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 at the moment, there isn't a big you know, external threat to it anymore. That could change depending on if the US votes for heavier sanctions. But, you know, the the Biden administration has gone very soft so far on on that. So it did seem like this was just a Benetza kind of hurdle that the, the market that the Russians had to get over. So why signal, you know, why continue to withhold gas from the market if there's such a big profit to be made? Now, you could say, well, they're they're making a huge amount of profit anyways, because obviously the lack of Russian gas into the market has kept it very high. And you're seeing, you know, kind of record, you know, profitability, let's say, for Gazprom this year, even though it didn't sell that much gas into the European market. And and that's because so much of it's now hub indexed and, and Gazprom is kind of, if you'd say, you know, using its market power in a way to to maximize its revenue at the moment. And it, it, that's really kind of where we feel like we've got to now. How long does Gazprom do this and let LNG wash into the European market, you mm. know, and, and mm. take that maybe for potentially for a very long time? Um, they have come out recently and said, you guys need to sign up to some long-term contracts. If you sign up to long-term contracts, then we will provide some more gas. Now, this is a little bit of a change of tact, but it, it kind of makes sense because if you're Gazprom, you have to be worried about you know the direction of travel for European, you know, for their European gas market and you know the decarbonization that's expected uh, to happen over the next you know over the next decade in the power sector with lots of you know the member states you know really looking for for significant increases you know in in the decarbonization of power, which means really hollowing out what you have for thermal generation. And yes, coal is going to take a hit on that, but you'd expect gas is going to take a hit on that as well, of course. Uh, so, you know, they could be like, well, let's, you know, let's get the utilities to lock in in longer contracts. And, you know, and and um, we've seen maybe some of the more Southern, you know, less market focused, uh, you know, or, or those markets with with less developed gas markets you know, signing up. We saw Greece, we saw Turkey, you know, in the last, you know, in the last month or two, 
signing up to some longer term contracts uh, from the Russians. And, and that, you know, maybe that's what they're trying to push. It's, it's basically like saying, forget about the ESP. We're not going to do ESP sales. You want more gas from us. You commit to a period. Hard to see maybe the utilities, you know, going for maybe another five year strip of gas or something like that, given, you know, if you look at investor reports and stuff like that, it's all about you know, amongst the utilities, it's all about renewables, it's about batteries, it's about EV charging points, you know, it's about the energy transition. It's not about renewables, and that's not the story you want to sell investors if you're mm. a European utility. Yeah, it's not about gas, you mean, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, or, it, it's probably utility. not, a, yeah. it's not really about gas anymore. And, and you know, gas, you know, we, we certainly believe gas, you know, will have to, play a transition role and it's just a question of how do you manage that transition role and certainly it's not probably increasing demand but do you need to keep gas around because you are going to expand power demand through the electrification of transport and other sectors you're probably going to increase you know uh, electricity demand from uh, the increase in in green hydrogen so you've got all of these things that are going to draw on renewables so you are still going to need some of the existing capacity just to to meet underlying demand. So th- there's this really big question. Unless you have a really, really big increase in energy efficiency, you know, demand's going to go up. If demand's going to go up, renewables st- will struggle to do everything that's going to be asked of it, which is meet higher demand, replace coal, replace nuclear, you know, and and potentially replace gas. That becomes very difficult. So we think, you know, gas definitely has a role to play through the coming decade, uh, maybe a little bit longer, you know, but then it is getting a little bit thin. And are you going to get utilities saying, yes, I'm, I'm going to happily commit to a very, you know, to a very long period of, of gas demand? And, and the answer is probably no. Maybe there's this little window now where they say, yes, gas has this transition where I can sign up for 10 years. But you know, maybe five years is is a more realistic for anybody wanting. You know that those those Russian gas flows, and is that enough for you know Gazprom? Is Gazprom going to be? I mean, I'm guessing Gazprom might offer that, but it is a big question. Yeah. So there's a, a combination of geopolitics, as we're seeing now with tensions uh, on the Ukraine border, as well as trying to secure these long-term deals for you know the long-term uh, demand for it, for its uh, its product but um when it comes to Nord Stream 2 uh, Trevor what what kind of analysis have you done and when do you expect the pipeline to start commercially start operations yeah i mean i think last time we talked to you we we, we talked almost exclusively about, about <laughs> russian question yeah. and ns2 and at that point we I think we were quite pessimistic. You know, we we basically said Nord Stream Two is not going to start probably till the end of Q3, and certainly nothing that's happened, you know, in in the last four or five weeks has really changed our view on that. We still think it is, you know, an, an end of Q3 type of time frame uh, for them to get authorization. Now, like you you said in your previous comment, I you know there there is a couple of threats to Nord Stream ever coming on. One is U.S. sanctions. But the other is, you know, all of the conflict, you know, on the Ukrainian border. And certainly if you have, uh, you know, if you have any kind of, you know, Russian incursion into Ukrainian, you know, onto Ukrainian soil again, you know, it just seems very hard, you know, politically then for for the Europeans to switch on, you know, (laughs) Nord Stream 2. And that becomes, you know, it becomes, you know, a pipeline that looks you know, looks almost dead in the water, you know, and, and these are two big threats to Nord Stream 2, you know, you know, the tension on Ukraine and 
uh, and U.S. sanctions. And, and certainly um, the Europeans would be much more la- relaxed with very heavy U.S. sanctions on that pipeline if you do have an invasion of you know, Ukraine by the Russians. Moving away from the Russia question a little bit there, Trevor, I mean, the other aspect that you haven't touched on, which could, you know, be throw a spanner in the works here is, uh, is the impact of French nuclear outages or a lack of availability here. Have you, have you, what, what are your expectations for the coming months? I mean, there's always, it's always a bit of a wild card, you know, the, the you know, extended outages, sudden, um, unplanned, uh, stops, etc. What, what, what kind of impact do you, do you see this having in, in the in the coming months? Yeah, I mean, this is certainly one of the things you know when you looked at you know you, when you look at twenty twenty two either Gasper in power or or the need for thermal, let's say you know uh, and emissions as well. You know, you look at both of those and you'd say, well, you know, power is going to be another year of year and year increases. Um, you know, because not you you've got a whole bunch of kind of nuclear questions. Certainly, you've got. The, the loss of four gigawatts at the beginning of this year of German nuclear. You've got EDF, you know, again, pointing to, you know, after two years of kind of recovery of nuclear, you know, a very, you know, a weak year for, for nuclear generation from the French. So you've got, you know, low nukes is going to be a question. I mean, I think the one thing that might save that in terms of year and year increments, of course, is last year, you know, 2021 was such an outlier in terms of, you know, wind speeds and that sort of thing. You know, it was not a great year for 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 wind availability, and of course, a lot of wind, uh, new wind capacity, new solar capacity came on in the EU last year. Uh, you know, and again, we expect that probably to happen again this year. You know, you're looking over, you know, well over 20 gigawatts of additional renewables being added. You know, there's a lot more capacity. It was just you had you know, kind of extreme, an extremely calm year in terms of weather patterns, you would expect some degree of normalization on that. And that's the one thing that's maybe going to offset that, you know, or potentially partially offset that big loss in nuclear that we're seeing this year. Of course, you also have, you know, a number of of, uh, coal-fired power generation uh, being shut down in the block as well, you know, and all of that just kind of adds to, uh, you know, adds to some of the pressure on the, the European gas market just because you are getting less, you know, fuel switching. You're getting, you know, what we saw this year, you know, was as gas moved through the fuel switch, you know, steps, uh, you know, and and priced itself increasingly out. You were getting, you know, you were getting less demand side response, partially because coal was tight as well. But you were getting less demand side response from the coal sector than you know what we expected, uh, you know, to see from previous years. And so, you know, that is one of the things that's you know the transition is going to bring is as you get rid of coal, you know, gas will become a le- less flexible market. It will become a more volatile beast because you don't have that safety net of oh we can just take it out of power and let coal generation take up the slack. That's just not going to be there anymore. So it does make it uh, a much more more volatile set of markets, both the gas market and, of course, the power market. But that that's more in the media term. I mean, I'm thinking it, this year we've seen record high carbon prices, up, up to nearly 90 euros a tonne. Um, yet you've seen this switch from gas to coal-fired generation. I mean, what would it take to, to flip that back to you know, coal to gas, which is what the carbon market is there to do in, in a sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, and we've said it for a couple of years, and we're probably have been a little bit of outlier, but we've, 
you know, we've kind of, <laughs> you know, had for a while, you know, the, the basic premise that the carbon market will be ineffective in the coal to gas switch because you price on all of the gas you need at such a low price that that it's not the carbon market that can then you know stimulate more gas fired generation because you're already maximizing out supply at very low gas prices so you know it, it doesn't provide that short term abatement what try what provides that short term abatement is development in, in the gas market right so you know when gas gets cheap against coal then then because it's that's happening because there's less demand than supply. Uh, and so that market is flexible and is trying to get more demand and is, is pushing coal out. And that's what needs to happen. We, you know, if you want to get back to, you know, the coal to gas switch rather than the gas to coal switch, you need the gas market to soften. And really, you know, the carbon market, you know, the, the fact it's higher just means that, you know, the fuel switch range happens at a higher place than it would otherwise do. So, you know, it's kind of inflationary for for gas, but it doesn't, you know, a high carbon price doesn't actually drive that switch in any material way. It is just the dynamics in the gas market, which is important for that switch. Yeah. And as as you said earlier, you don't really expect to, to soften until the latter half of this year, the gas prices. A fi- final question, Trevor. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, at the start, you know, US LNG coming in. Um, what, what's, your, what's your view here in the coming weeks and months? And, and to what extent will this help Europe and, and the supply situation within Europe? Yeah, I mean, like I said, a number of things happened and, and it has been, you know, one of the, the key reasons behind the softening in gas prices that we have seen, you know, coming off those really, really big highs you, you mentioned about. I mean, we generally, you know, we're still reasonably constructive now in terms of how much, uh, you know, LNG we did have uh, in our previous balances. We only saw January as being reasonably low in terms of incremental supply. And then we had quite a lot of incremental supply coming in in February, March. And that was because, you know, we we'd, you know, assumed a reasonable degree of normalization of of Asian weather and 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 because Asian weather was so cold in December uh, and January you know uh, it, you know uh, from December 2020 into January 21 you just had a lot of restocking in February and March and that restocking is going to be pushed later and later into the year because you don't you know the Asians at the moment don't need to do that there's a lot of you know there's enough backwardation in the curve to say use up stocks and just sell your cargoes back into the market so I'd, I'd say for the rest of Q1, you know, it looks pretty good for LNG back, you know, coming back into the European market. We expect, you know, reasonable size incremental chunks of that uh, to continue to happen for the next, uh, you know, for the next two months. And really, it, you know, maybe softening a little bit when you get into the summer. But generally, I would say generally through this year, we're reasonably constructive of increments coming in. Last year was reasonably low in terms of the amount of LNG supply. So year on year, we do expect more LNG supply to come into the market. Um, that doesn't really fundamentally, you know, I mean, it allows a softening of prices. It probably allows prices, you know, and the risk profile to come down quite a lot. Um uh, does that mean you know we're going to move from historically high gas prices? It it probably doesn't mean that's going to happen this year. But we won't see those extreme spikes that we saw, say, in December, potentially. Um, uh, you know, certainly that's not our base case. You mm-hmm. know, you can certainly. I, <laughs> I mean, some of the things we expect to happen is you know Russian flows at the moment are incredibly low. Uh, we do expect that those are going to have to step up just to meet you know the the contracted quantities uh, that 
that you know we're even below contract numbers at the moment. I think there's a reason for that, which is um, you know the way the indexation a lot of those contracts work is on an M plus one indexation. So that indexation number for January was set, you know, above a hundred euros per ton. So, you know, if you're a contract holder for the Russians, basically the economics is saying don't nominate in January and that's what we're seeing. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, if it got cold, you know, those economics would probably change, you know, and 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 probably the you know the day ahead price would then start going above the contract price and when that happens you get a return to nominations but with the russians not you know not using the uh, the esp to sell any incremental gas into the market anymore a lack of nominations just means a lack of russian supply we do think that has to pick up and that has to change and, and probably you know the, the the month ahead index will for for, for february should be well, it should be less than 100 anyway, so mm. it will fall. Um, mm. Whether or not those dynamics hold for another month remains to be seen, but, you know, until we get out there. But um, at some point, you would say those nominations have to pick up and then Russian flows have to pick up just to meet contracted numbers. So that's a risk, you know, whether or not people, you know, don't do that just because, you know, or, or you, they don't do that for a couple of months, maybe a little bit of an upside risk. But yeah, I mean, you know, as with, with all of these things, you know, fundamentals can change pretty quickly. You know, if we do have a month of cold weather in February or something, then all of a sudden the summer looks, you know, it will look tighter again. And, you know, all of that will happen. So the ESB being the um, electronic sales platform that Gazprom uses to sell. So gas into yes. Europe. Yeah, exactly. So Trevor, thank you very much. That was a fantastic overview of what we can expect in the in the coming months. Um, thank you for joining the, the Montel Weekly Podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation, Richard. Always a pleasure. All the best. So listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Montel Weekly Podcast. Please direct message, any suggestions, questions, or, you know, let us know if you if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you and goodbye.